Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. I'm Brian McCain. Um, We have an interesting show for you. We've got uh, Kevin Wilkins on with us today. Um, Kevin is one of the more interesting characters in our little little world in southern Colorado. Uh, He's he's already forgotten more about economic development than any of the rest of us will ever know. We're going to get with Kevin because he's always... uh, he always tells it like he sees it, which is what we love most about him. We'll get um, with him in just a minute. Um, before I we do that, we um, this is our second to last live show with Voice America, but we are sticking with Voice America. We have been so incredibly impressed um, with them. We're we're going to go uh, straight podcast uh, after the first of the year, but they've just been so wonderful to us. Um, Tracy uh, Motley, who is our executive producer in particular, has um, held our hand through this whole process. And if any of you are thinking about trying to take your podcast, either start it or take it to the next level to do it in a way that's really professional and really great, um, reach out to Voice America because basically if we can do it with our very busy schedule and everything that we um, do on a day-to-day basis, um, then anybody can do it with the help of an organization like Voice America. So I just wanted to give them a shout out on that. Um, we had a really great week earlier this week. Um, we had uh, Jay Camino and uh, um, Colonel Bob McLaughlin down um, because they were doing an interesting thing that you've been helping them with. Yeah, so uh, Mount Carmel, <clears throat> which we've talked about before, they're a veteran service organization, a nonprofit started by Mr. Chimino in Springs. If you're not familiar with him, he's a car dealer. He owns all the Philong Ford dealerships uh, from El Paso County down to Trinidad. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they have this center, Mount Carmel Veteran Service Center, which is a non- their nonprofit arm. And basically, it's kind of like a one-stop shop clinic for all veterans. It's not a v- connected to the VA, but they work with the VA and all medical providers to get veterans care they need from mental health to job placement to um, VSOs, providing benefits, anything. Anything that comes in front of a veteran or their family can go to Mount Carmel. Uh, they originally started in Trinidad, and they built it up from there. And then it, they opened their main center in Springs about five years ago. And they want to get out to the more rural areas, so their first stop is Pueblo. So we had the grand opening and the public reception for Mount Carmel here in Pueblo. Uh, give a, a thanks to Mike Cafaso. He's the CEO of the hospital, Centura, I believe, but yeah. it's um, St. Mary Corwin here St. in Mary Pueblo. Corwin. They actually provided the space for Mount Carmel, so Mount Carmel has a fully functioning staffed office in Pueblo at St. Mary Corwin that any veteran can go to. Don't need an appointment, just walk in. Uh, they're also opening one up in Fountain, I believe, and they have their eyes on other areas in the, the Action 22 area. And we'll keep you guys updated Yeah, and, on that. and I know that uh, Colonel McLaughlin, he's been going down to Alamosa quite a bit, talking to people down there to identify needs. So maybe in the future that's a possibility that they come into the valley. I don't know. But they're doing really good work, and they're helping a lot of people out. And just want to give a, a big 
thank you to everybody involved that helped make that happen. And we the reception was great. I think oh, it was. Everybody. I was so surprised. There was like seventy people there. It was every elected official, the who's who of the region. They were all there, and it was just a, a great time. And Action Twenty Two is an official partner with them, so of course we got to set up a table, and we got a lot of recognition of helping make this happen. It's one of the things that Action Twenty Two does for our membership and the region. It was, is create these connections, set stuff up, hold convenings, and make it happen. And we did. Yeah. And he said that Action 22 was a big part of that. Um, and they were. You did a really good job. Yeah. And then, of course, um, running the office over there is um, our friend Doug. Doug Fitzgerald, who's been on the show once or twice I yeah. think, in the background. Um, he is running the office. He's their public kind of public affairs coordinator. So he's the guy that's like the face of Mount Carmel and the community. Uh, they are hiring a full-time, basically a case manager for veteran stuff, VSOs, all of that. And I think they have somebody who's a good guy here in Pueblo. I don't want to spoil anything, but we'll let you know when that opens up because it is somebody with ties to the region that is there to help. And once he gets in there, if it's him, you're going to see great things happen. They've already helped, I think, 20 veterans, and they've only been open for two weeks. Yeah. So. No, it's amazing. And we were so – that's one of the things I'm – really proud of happening in Pueblo and that we could be partners on that. Yep. And um, you've done a great job on helping them out and connecting them with everybody to get the job done. And I know they've really appreciated your work on that. So, um, and hey, then Brian, if you uh, need some small event space for, to, for a gathering, we could use the welcome center. Yes, that's yeah. actually a good idea. Oh, there you go. We'll do Cent- that. Centr- centrally located. You could probably accommodate 50 or so in there. That'd be perfect. I know uh, first of the year, he uh, Colonel McLaughlin wants to come down there. Uh, he's already been engaging people, but I think that'd be good. And I, again, I don't want to jinx it or I don't want to say anything out of term, but I think they're really looking at the Valley as maybe their next stop to do some good work. They understand. But that's but- just my opinion. I don't know. that I'm not speaking on behalf of Mount Carmel <laughs> with this. But. So with that, I'm going to officially introduce Kevin Wilkins. Kevin Wilkins is on... Um, the Action 22 executive team. He is the CEO for San Luis Valley Resource Development Group, which is a COG, uh, and they do all the economic development stuff. But it's it's not a um, it's not a simple thing. It's not like a chamber of commerce or anything like that. Um, he has his uh, finger on how funding should go, um, how everything intersects, and really he's got this tremendous resume um, and I think it's just a huge uh, gift that we have him on our board. Um, one of the, uh, not too long ago, somebody said to me that I needed to quit surrounding myself with yes men and I go, Kevin Wilkins is on my board and they're like, I stand corrected. I stand <laughs> corrected because Kevin will tell you like it is every time without apology. So um, Kevin, I appreciate you offering that. Um, Will you just, for listeners who are around, will you give us a little bit uh, more background of where you came? Because you've been um, all over the West doing what you what you do, um, from newspapers to, you've done all of it. So would you give everybody a little bit of history on Kevin? All right. I, I was a community newspaper in Ray, Colorado, when they were the smallest city to win the All-America City designation. I went from that for, to a chamber manager, an economic developer in Belfrouche, South Dakota, and then switched to just a concentration on economic development in Shadron, Nebraska. Spent about 10 years just outside of Omaha and Fremont, Nebraska. Did about six or $700 million 
worth of projects in, in that community, developed four industrial parks, took a job with the city of Fort Morgan, establishing a city economic development department that didn't go so well, ended up in Yuma, Arizona, uh, doing the same thing, standing up a city economic development department. Spent about five years there until I called Mike Wisdom to congratulate him on his retirement from this position in the San Luis Valley. <laughs> and Mike said, hey, I'm short of resumes. Would you mind sending me yours? And, and here I am. There you go. You've been there about five years, yeah? It'll be, it's, it's, I'm, I'm in my sixth year. Oh, there you go. And it's a fascinating place. I mean, I thought Yuma, Arizona was fascinating, but San Luis Valley is, is uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting place. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a native Coloradoan, uh-huh. and I had never been to the San Luis Valley until I interviewed. And I called my mom and said, I just did this interview in the San Luis Valley. And she said, well, you know, after the Dust Bowl, both of my grandparents, both of her grandparents migrated to the south, to the San Luis Valley. So I've got a dead great uncle in Santa, in the cemetery in San Ocasio, and then uh, both sets of great grandparents pass through here at one How time. Or funny. So the frog spirits do call you back eventually. They do. Yeah. All roads lead to the to and from the San Luis Valley. Um, so the very first time I met Kevin was right after I got this job, and we went down um, to the San Luis Valley because everyone's like, man. It's hard. It's hard. The valley's hard. You're going to have difficulty. I was like, no, I won't. Let's talk about every place else. And I kept telling them, no, look, I'm my family from both sides, my husband's family, my every, like I went to school at Adam State. I met my husband at Adam State. You know, my father-in-law is buried there. My mother-in-law will be buried there. Um, I've got lots of family who are buried there. I'm you know, the Espinosa brothers, that's the great uncles of my father, you know, my grandfather, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so nobody believed me. And then they're like, okay. And I think it was a challenge sort of. And we, I walked into your office. We'd never met. You're like, I'm not doing, having anything to do with Action 22. We walked out, you joined Action 22, and you've been on my board almost since that time. Action 22 had a reputation of being a partisan organization. Mm-hmm. And I joined on the condition that we do the hard work of policy. And you, and you followed through on that promise. I, and, I'm we, very, and I'm very proud of Action, two, Action 22 because we do the hard work of policy. Well, we're, not, we're, we're a no-drama organization. That's right. <laughs> Which is maybe some of the – I had got that from so many of my executive team. In fact, everybody on my exec, that's on my executive team had that same philosophy – uh, policy and no drama. We're just going to do policy work and no drama. But it's funny when we say policy work, most people don't even know what we're talking about. I say that Action 22 is a nonpartisan organization that is very partisan when it comes to issues that impact our area and membership. And that's the policy part of it. We, we support or oppose and work on policy to influence the policy makers just to look out for our membership in the region. And that's what I like to do. Yes. It, it doesn't matter what's behind your name, an R, a D, an I, whatever. We don't care. If it's good for us, it's good for us. If it's bad for us, it's bad for us. And we have credibility with policymakers as a result of it. I mean, the, the, the annual meeting that I'm sorry I missed in Trinidad, I mean, that, that was stellar. Uh, Governor uh, Phil Weiser's talk, if you, haven't, if you haven't seen it, go on the Making Action Haption YouTube page and mm-hmm. watch it. 
and, and so the governor's good. presentation, and, and it's all about us. Yes. Not about not about partisanship. It's not about it's about the policy of us. Yep. Yeah. It, it's, oh, I love that. It's funny too, because going up to Denver, like with the UVC or anything, when I'm up there, I always say the valley. You know, we talk about the Action 22 region. I'm like, well, down in the valley. And in Denver, they kind of look at me. They're like, well, what what is the valley? You know, and I have to realize <laughs> that there's 12 places that you refer to as the valley in Colorado. So it's always, yeah. you know, San Luis so, Valley, Southern Colorado. We are the Colorado. valley. That's what I always say. It's the valley. I Yeah. I, I only recognize the San Luis Valley as the valley. My friends in the Arkansas Valley are going to be mad at me about that. But <laughs> well, we got 8,200 square miles of valley. They don't. Yeah. It's the valley. <laughs> it's the valley. Um, so... And if you really want to see it and you like maps, you should look at a topographical map of the San Luis Valley sometime. It's wildly interesting. Um, So several months ago, maybe even a year ago, you and I were talking about um, broadband. Um, We we have these discussions. So uh, Kevin and I have a lot of philosophical discussions on how to make the policy portion work in Colorado. This is not an easy thing. We, there's a lot of layers and a lot of intersections and a lot of work that always needs to be done. So you were talking about a broadband project and Action 22 is helping out with this part of it. But we sort of looked at this. Um, you really got sort of tore everything up in, in creating what this project should look like. So the idea was... Um, expanding broadband through an, a digital, the, an equity digital lens or a digital equity lens. And so you started to put all this together. Why was the approach, why was it important did you th- that you thought that the approach should be so much different than other broadband expansion programs that have ha- or projects that have happened in the past? Why did this one have to be just different? We completed our broadband plan in 2017, and, and we had a technical advisory committee that was meeting monthly or every other month. And it got to the point where you know there were the the the, 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 the ISPs, the service providers, they were they were moving as aggressively as possible to deploy broadband within the San Luis Valley, and they were doing a great job of it. And and there was really no need for the broadband committee, the technical steering committee of the COG, to meet until the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic just blew the lid off of demand because uh, asymmetrical uh, upload and download speeds got blown out of the water by video conferencing. Uh, bandwidth was getting chewed up at an alarming rate. And the nonprofit community came to, the, to us and said, hey, I thought you guys were doing broadband. And so we started having a, a conversation with the nonprofit community led by Community Resource Center. And we came up with, with an idea, well, okay, we need to re-engage and cover this equity piece because the, the most impacted portion of the pandemic were those who didn't have or have an, have, they didn't, either didn't have broadband or lacked an appreciation of the need of broadband. Mm-hmm. So that's where, that's where the equity piece came in. And, and working through with the uh, Community Resource Center and the Colorado Trust. The Colorado Trust is what's funding this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we said, okay, we need, we, need a, we need a technical coordinator. 
because now you have all this this money that's going to be coming down from Washington and the state. And in order to effectively deploy that, you need to have somebody who speaks that language to make sure you're not building over the top of what you've already built. And so we 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 contracted with a technical provider, Paradigm Connectivity, which is really an innovative uh, technical provider who kind of specializes in cell phone connectivities. So it's not your typical just limited to fiber. So we've ex- we've kind of expanded the scope of of what the technical reach is, and then we needed to cover this outreach piece so that we can get to the disadvantage, so that we can get to the need, and, and we put out a proposal for an outreach coordinator. And, and thankfully, Action 22 stepped up to the plate and uh, submitted a proposal. And, and, and what you're discovering, I think, just in the, just, you've been on a month, mm-hmm. yeah. the discover, discoveries that you've made and the lack of digital literacy, even not, and it's not just a disadvantage. It's 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 the it's elderly. It's businesses that that don't really have a full appreciation of the benefits and needs of broadband uh, connectivity. I think the example that you that you saw in Capulane, Sarah, was yeah, was pretty revealing. <clears throat> well, and just you know, beginning this when you say digital equity, equity means something different in any lens that you look at it, right? And coming into it, I said, you know, digital equity for the Valley is going to be different than anywhere else. It's going to be similar to other, say, rural areas, but specifically for the Valley. And as we dug into it, I think that the biggest kind of shocker that we we found was that it, it's a literacy issue more than anything. It's digital literacy is like having a negative impact on what the mission of this is trying to do. It's not an accessibility, even in a lot of cases, not even affordability or technical or anything like that. It's just an education issue on why this is important and what needs to be done. And I think education is going to be a big part of this outreach that goes hand in hand with it. Yeah. So the so I'll tell the story since you brought it up about about Capulene. I had. Um, so, you know, it was brought to our attention that there was um, there was a gap in access to internet, um, and I I always ask a lot of questions. So I asked, started asking the question of someone who would know what that really was, uh, and then it got it led to another discussion. And the discussion was: we have a, a cell phone carrier, and we have an internet provider, but I can't use my cell phone at my house. Um, mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And so I just then I was so confused for a second. And I said, um, so you can't do Wi-Fi calls from your phone at your house because you have you have Internet. And she said, oh, can you do that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. She goes with is it just any smartphone or is it just a, an iPhone? I'm like, no, I'm you can do that with any phone. And she goes, oh, my goodness, this is going to be a game changer because we have so many elderly people that carry their phone with them, but it doesn't really do them any good in their house. But if they had it in their house, blah, blah, blah. So it's that digital, it's the asking questions um, and arriving at, that's a fairly simple thing to fix. And I agree, um, there's been so many really aggressive um, build-outs on things from ISPs but for whatever reason, and we don't know what that is yet, um, that digital equity piece, the, the biggest part is that literacy, the digital literacy piece. And it might be something really small like that, 
or I, you know, was having a conversation with uh, the principal over the online school down there, Brenda Martini for Alamosa. And she was saying, you know, there's just a small handful of students that don't have it. Um, but this is, these are the issues that, as to why they don't have access. And she said, we're working on it, but yeah, we could always use some more help. But they were, they were really interesting, um, totally unexpected and totally in each case where there wasn't access, there was, it was a very unique case. So this is a really interesting, um, this is an interesting approach to really overcoming um, some of those gaps. Um, but you and I talked about what we can do with this program if we're successful, how we do that, how we create a playbook on um, addressing other issues that we see in our rural communities around the state. Well, and, and that's that's the beauty of what we're trying to do here and the discoveries that we're making. It, it's not as much about connectivity it's, it's, it's as, as much as it is effectively using the connectivity that we have. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's going to be some build-out. There's going to be some need for some build-out. Um, right, right. But if you build it out and nobody effectively uses it, what have you accomplished? And then that translates directly back to the economic prosperity of the community. Because just by building the infrastructure alone, is not going to drive any economic activity unless somebody utilizes it effectively, which is where the digital literacy comes in. And what's 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 fascinating is we talk when we talk about inclusion and equity, we generally are having a focus on the disadvantaged. But when but what we're discovering in the broadband world is 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 this this literacy is the the person you're referring to with uh, uh, Wi-Fi calls. Yeah, it is not disadvantaged. No. And when we had this conversation, I picked up my cell phone and said, oh, huh. Yeah, I guess I could do that. (laughs) I don't know how anybody functions without that part, Um, especially in rural communities. I can't. We discovered yesterday we had a horrible windstorm um, and I have my Wi-Fi was intermittent and out for most of the day and. And I have uh, one bar of LTE where I'm out in the mountains. And so, we, you know, you just can't, I couldn't do the job without that piece. Uh, so yes, we discovered that yesterday when you, when you dropped me about four times. Yeah, last, even last night it wasn't working. I dropped you about four times. So, um, the, so the part that we're going to do is we're going to be meeting with um, a lot of uh, the government, you know, down there with, I think our very first meeting is going to be in Swatch County. Yep. Um, we love those people in yeah. Swatch County. They have all kinds of unique problems. Yes, they do. And it's going to be kind of a tiered like outreach system. So outreach to the government, which could be school districts, the county, whatever. Then you're going to see outreach to more of the nonprofit side to see what's going on. And that does cover the disadvantaged um, people there. And then the third part is going to be like community outreach. And that's where we invite the community in to talk about it as well. So it's kind of a three-level approach to these areas. Um, and that's that's my plan going forward. Yeah. Well, and then with those community pieces, we're going to do a lot of this um, digital literacy. And with people, you can sit down and like look at everything that your phone can do that yeah. you didn't know that your phone could do. And as soon as those conversations start to happen, then we're going to see where the gaps are in all of that. And then the other thing is we're just starting 
like we're still unpacking ARP funds, which is going to is an interesting thing that we're going to talk about in the second half of the hour with you. But now we have Build Back Better. We have uh, all these other things that are going on. So what you're going to see is um, broadband build-out projects coupled with other really important and big projects. Um, transmission, maybe, maybe like all the stuff that needs yeah. to happen in the next little bit. They're all they're going to couple all of those things together. And to to what to Kevin's <clears throat> point. Traditionally, over the past 15 years, as this has gone on, it's always been identifying an area that has low connectivity and just building it and throwing money at it. It didn't take into account the end user. You know, it didn't take account in, or sorry, I'm mixing my words up here, but it didn't look at the actual people. It looked at the region. So you saw all this money being spent and it went from EagleNet to Seacom to everybody of just like building it out, but not actually connecting people. And what we're doing is focusing on actually connecting people, not just throwing a lot of money to build more fiber in an area on top of fiber that was built five years ago on top of copper that was built 10 years ago and blah, 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 blah. We're actually trying to identify these areas, why they're not connected and what the problem is. It's going to be uh, fun. We're excited. Go ahead. The, uh, the, the, the pain, we're, not wasting a, we're not wasting a crisis, basically. Uh, before there was a little bit of resistance to telemedicine, there was resistance to distance learning. The pandemic blew the lid off. Of yes. So we're 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 going to try to maximize the crisis and get p and 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 ex ex uh, expediently pull people into this digital world. Yep. And 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 people are ready to embrace it. Yesterday, I had four Zoom meetings. If I was still traveling in my car, I'd have had zero meetings. Yep. Yeah. I barely made that one Zoom meeting. I had to call in because in a place where broadband's excellent, uh, it dropped. Because of the wind. Because of the wind. The wind was was horrible yesterday. Um, So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, I think, a behind-the-curtain view of how the funding has actually worked. So we have all this funding that goes out that's been offered um, and how where it's been impactful, where it's not been impactful, um, really um, a different point of view on all the funding that if that will work for you, Kevin, we'll talk about that when we get back. All right. One more thing on paradigm connectivity. The, the, the other beauty of this is because they're not just your, they're, they're a little bit, not, not what your, your typical broadband consultant. We're looking right. at more innovative ways to tackle this pro, this problem. So things uh, we haven't thought of before. And again, it's going to be replicable to the rest of the action 22 region. Yeah. That's what we love. And I think more than just broadband, this approach is going to work for more than just broadband moving forward. So we love it. All right, stick around. When we come back, we're going to talk about all the other, all the other great stuff. Um, and Kevin's going to get, um, we're going to see if we can get uh, the feisty Kevin to, to come out too. So stick around. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to one 866 Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Making Action Happen. So, Kevin, let's talk about funding a little bit. What... um, I'm going to give you a really loaded question. What do um, business owners, nonprofit, and local governments not understand? Like, what is it that they're that they haven't quite figured out yet about all the funding mechanisms that have come out in the last year? That is that is not that is not standard. There are no there. I, I used to have people in my office all the time looking for a grant to start up a business. And I would say there are no grants. Now the pandemic has kind of blown the 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 the, the, the wall out on that because we have been giving out grants, uh, and we've been giving out grants at a, at a pretty alarming rate. We've we've been we've been throwing money at trying to keep the economy going, and it's worked. I mean, if you look at the sales tax figures in San Luis Valley, uh, they're phenomenal. In, in in across the San Luis Valley between 2019 and 2021, we're up like 160 percent. Now, wow. some of that comes from online sales with the South Dakota, Wayfair versus South Dakota, uh, but some of it is driven by the amount of money that's went into the economy. And and when you're in a low low income economy, most of that in the most of that income that's that's those grants are spent. They're not saved. They're not used to pay down debt. So it does translate more into sales tax here than in other regions. Um, there's going to be some more grant money coming, but don't don't expect that to become the norm. The other side of all of this money that's being driven towards businesses is there's no better time to borrow money than right now. I'm I'm making loans within our loan portfolio that I may have thought twice about before. So I'm I'm willing to step out a little bit more credit risk because I have this money that I need to get out the door and banks are in the same position. So, so it's a it's a good time to borrow money. So, if you're in business, you need to take a look at your business and say, okay, if I'm going to grow and I need to borrow money to grow, 
let's do it now. Let, let's start that process now. If you are a business, then you're tired. Uh, it's, been, it's been a tough couple of years. Um, you've been thinking about getting out. Now is the time to sell because your, the, your business values are probably up more than, they, than they've ever been. Real estate prices are up. And, and, and again, interest rates are low and there's lots of credit out there. So in terms of, of, of the money that's coming in under the CARES Act and the most recent Rescue Act, um, as it relates to business, um, look, at your, look, look at your borrowing needs. And if, if you're contemplating transitioning, now is a good time to do that. Are rural businesses and organizations taking advantage of that? Probably not as aggressively as they are in some urban areas. Um, we're more conservative, and your and your business community is more conservative, so they're more they're they're more averse to debt right. than perhaps they are in in other regions. So I would say no, they are not. Um, they, they are in a mindset of hunkering down, and and there is a there there, there is a time to hunker down. But I don't think that's now. I, I think if we continue into uh, some more inflationary cycles and we might have a minor recession, there's going to be a time to hunker down and you might want to build that in your, into your borrowing needs and anticipated uh, into your credit analysis moving forward in your business, that there will be this possible slowdown. But now is not the time to hunker down. Now is the time to get aggressive when you're borrowing in your, in your expansion. So the in a lot of um, arenas, the things that we're hearing are the importance of public-private partnerships right now. How has that changed? How has that evolved in the last year and a half? I don't think, other, other than in some, maybe some of these infrastructure builds, uh, as we look at specifically to broadband, there's opportunity for public-private partnerships. Um, CDOT is good about pushing those public-private partnerships as it relates to their right-of-ways and working with councils of governments and, and, and internet service providers on, on uh, open access bills. Um, but I'm not really seeing a whole lot of additional movement in public-private partnership. What do you see as emergers? Who's really emerging through all this? I, you know, that that's a tough question. Uh, um, what when the pan, the pandemic accelerated a lot of known flaws within our economy: supply chain, um, tra uh, um, transportation, transit. Uh, we're, we're kind of moving back. And as we move back, and transit's another one of those areas where I think there's some more opportunity for public-private partnership. Uh, as we And, and, tra and trans transportation as it relates to electrical charging stations is another area where there's opportunity for public-private partnerships. So we've the pandemic has accelerated what, what trends that have already existed, both positively and negatively. And we're, and we're just in the process of sorting that out and adapting to a new reality right now. Um, so what do you see as um, things, what's, what's got, I'm going to ask you, what's got you worried um, for in, over the next two years and what has you thinking it's going to be okay? So start with what's got you worried. 
uh, there, there's been a lot of hand wringing and gnashing of teeth over this money and trying to figure out where it's coming from and what it's supposed to do. Um, we're wasting a lot of time trying to figure out the funding sources when we should be spending time figuring out what the, what projects we want to, we want to implement. There are projects that are currently sitting on the shelves in people's comprehensive plans, but you need to pull those down and dust them off and see what's still relevant. And, and, and maybe find out what's relevant and then even tweak it so it, it, it enhances the new, what we're discovering to be some of the new normals as a result of the pandemics. Trying to, trying to dissect the funding mechanisms and then backfill it with a, and make up a project to backfill it is inefficient and takes too much time. That's, that's probably a big concern over as, as we get into the next three-year scramble for all of this anticipated federal funding. Uh, find the projects, come, come, come to the resources that have the expertise that have already looked at the funding and then say, okay, tell me, tell me what fits. Um, Brian worked in constituent services most of his adult life. They're, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. That, that's their job. Uh, you have economic development districts who work with the EDA. That's our job is to figure out, okay, let's, let's look at what you want to do and then figure out how to do it. So I love the idea of, of taking your strategic plan or taking your, your plan out and dusting it off because I think before the pandemic, we, it had become almost a joke about these strategic plans that everybody spends a whole bunch of time in. They do a whole bunch and then they're, they're great and they look great on the shelf. Like, okay, we've got our strategic plan done. Now let's get on with business of operating or governance or whatever it is. Um, dust, I wonder how many... Uh, local governments have actually started to do that, pull those out, dust them off. I don't think we shouldn't be looking at it any differently than when we looked than, than 2008. And uh, Brian, I have to refresh my memory. Was the America Rescue Plan Act, was it ARPA? In 2000, there was a different acronym. Anyway, it was a, it was a different acronym. I'll find yeah. out. No, the, the, the Biden was ARPA. But anyway, the, yeah. whatever the acronym was uh, in, two, in the 2008 crisis, they 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 wanted accelerated. They wanted to get the economy accelerated quickly, so they wanted you to find shovel ready projects and they would fund them. We need to have some of that similar mentality now. Is to find what your shovel ready projects are, maybe take maybe reexamine them a little bit to see how they fit into our new normal, and then start talking to people in constituent services. Come into my office and we'll talk over whether it's USDA a potential USDA build, EDA fund, or, or, uh, or um, HUD, HUD funding, uh, we'll go look for the money. Find the, define the projects first. Right. Yeah, Don't build the, your project around the money. Let the money fill in your project. And that, that was the, so was the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was the title of it. And that was the one where they came out, and I think it was in 2009, 2010, and maybe another year or two after that. It was only for shovel-ready projects, and there was a like a timer on it. It was like, okay, in the next six months, you're shovel-ready. We have money for you. Bring it up. The problem with that was the normal way of thinking on applying for this money in the past or applying for funds, specifically federally, even state, you know, it's like a two-year planning process. And what hurt this one was it's like, we need it now. And nobody was ready to have those projects presented to get the money immediately. 
And that's what, where we saw the problem with it. Now, luckily with the, the ARPA funding, you know, we have some time, but there still is a stopwatch on it. And that's what they need yeah. to realize that the clock is ticking, not like the old one, but it's still ticking right now. And, and it takes time to come up with a thoughtful project. I mean, it, it, it can take years. Yeah. And, and that's the reason I'm, I'm encouraging entities of local government, pull out your comp plans mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 see, and see if there's anything you, want, you really want to get done or, or what needs to be done. Prioritize that. Yeah. So let me ask you, um, as, and we are hearing from a lot of people who are ready, we're kind of waiting around on Build Back Better, but those are, a lot, those are infrastructure pro- projects. So do you see there being a willingness to, um, for everybody, I mean, they're going to have to at some level, but work together on some of these infrastructure pro- projects and thinking about broadband and um, transportation. If they're, basically the idea is, if we're going to dig a hole, let's throw as much stuff into it as we have can right this minute. There's going to have to be a whole lot of collaboration. Yes, there should be. A, there should be a lot of coordination, and I and I think I think the platform exists as a result of what we've just went through with crisis management with the pandemic. Uh, just just continue the continue those dialogues and just shift them from from a pandemic response to a build response. Now you asked me what another concern is of of all of this funding is. We have workforce issues and supply chain issues now. If everybody tries to build everything at once, it's not going to be. It, 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 there's going to be. There's going to. There's going to be cost overruns and, and labor shortages. So that's another reason why why this whole thing can get a little bit messy without that type of coordination that you're talking about. There's only. There's no. There's so many. So many backhoes. Right. And I had. There's probably even fewer backhoe operators. Especially had, now. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. How do we, how do we improve the workforce? I mean, how do we get people? How do we build a workforce? That's the question that everybody's yeah. been asking for a while now. It's and we've tried everything with this, whether it's free school, free certificates. You know, like comp- even from companies to the government side of it, it's like, hey, you want to be a welder? We'll pay for you to be a welder and we'll have a job for you. Like it, it's literally, you could walk in, I want to be a welder. It's paid for. I have a job. But you're still not seeing the people come to that. So how, what's the answer? I don't think anybody's figured that out yet. We probably need to be looking at Japan because Japan has been de- dealing with an aging workforce and a, and a decline and the and and de- workforce has been declining in numbers for a while. Some of it's going to be automation. Some of it's... Uh, some of it's just accepting the reality that there's a certain percentage of the population that isn't going to work. Yeah. Some of it's figuring out our immigration policy. The, 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 the workforce is probably the, the most complex issue to address because it's multifaceted and there is no one single approach to make it work. Um, but uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about supply chain because that's one that's really scary too. Supply chain will flatten out if we can if we can continue to be strategic about it yes i think there's been some improvements made we, we talk about the using it using not wasting a crisis we had some supply chain issues that were building up with just-in-time inventories and 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 and, and the fluidity of of, of rap, the rapid movement of goods um We've made some adjustments to that. 
Um, I think you're going to, uh, there's going to be a re-examination of consumerism that's going to adjust some of the consumer-driven supply chains. When it, when it comes to these infrastructure projects, you know, the, the, the broadband is a hot issue. Or is there enough fiber to do all the fiber builds? Yeah. And, then, and then how do you ramp up production to meet that build when that build is going to end at a certain time? These are things that smart people are going to be able to figure out. But if, if we try to do all of this in three years and not 10 years, it's, it's not going to be very efficient. Is there funding to, is the funding um, created in such a way that we can do it in 10 years or is it going to be three years and we've got to figure I, it out? In that I, I think there are pots of the money that, that have a 10 year shelf life. Brian's probably more literate on that than I am. Um, but, but that, that's another one of those that where, where we look at the project and then we figure out, okay, what's, do we do the project in phases? We use this, we use this pot of money for this phase. And then when they anticipate that the next phase dips into another fund, um, there, there's ways to look at this. And then again, goes back to defining the project first and then figuring out how to pay for it. Once you define what you want to do. Yeah. And that's, that's where it gets kind of scary, right? If, you phase out a project and it's okay, we're getting the money from A, this pot right now. And then B, we're going to have funding from this way, but that can change, which makes it a little risky to kind of throw all in on one thing that you don't know for certain you're going to get funded on the second half of the project, whatever. But I think right now with everything going on, that's a risk you have to take with a lot of these. And I hope to see that, but I, I don't know. That's just my opinion. You know, I'm working on a housing project while La Puente right now where you know, they need to encumber a piece of property before they get final approval on whether or not they're going to get the money to build on it. Mm-hmm. So, so they're going to have to take some risk to encumber the property while they're working on the funding mechanism to, to get the construction dollars. Yeah. And then, and then even those construction dollars are going to come slowly. So they're going to be going on a bid that by the time the dollar comes in, maybe six, eight, six to eight months old. And then, and then trying to find a contractor that's willing to hold to a bid document that long in an inflationary economy. That's just the reality of work. That's just the reality of, of, of working with public dollars. Which that's why that's why people don't, people think that this government money is such a great thing. Well, it, it it can be, but if you don't if you if you're not if you don't have the ability to embrace these challenges, then it, it's a nightmare. Which a great example of that is the VA hospital that was built in Aurora that went, I think, one point two billion dollars over budget, and then the contractor taking this contract, knowing it was public money, it was federal money, ended up suing the government to get paid for it. And I, I think that, at least in Colorado, that really scared a lot of these contractors now where you have, um, you know, federal installations looking for contractors to build and they, you know, it's a huge contract and nobody's willing to take the risk right now. Well, and that, and you know, the, the, the old joke about the $400 hammer. Well, yep. there, 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 there's a reason that it's a $400 hammer is because it was, it was, it was, it, it had to go through all the, the builder of that $400 hammer had to go through all of these steps in order to produce the hammer. 
there was probably $400 worth of cost in that hammer. Yep. Yes, it is. Um, okay, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Actually, that reminds me of something. There, there's kind of a story about how NASA spent, you know, $10 million to develop a pen that could write in space, and they developed the, the ballpoint pen. And then the joke was, you know, well, the Russians, they just used a five-cent pencil, and it's supposed to show government waste. But the problem with that is that you can't use a pencil in space because a graphite actually, like, short circuits everything. Yeah. And then you go into it's like, well, they spent all this money for the research, blah, blah, blah. And what is made to make the government look bad at the money they spend on a ballpoint pen, it actually, there's a reason for it. And, yeah, that's kind of the same thing with the hammer. Um, there's a more recent example in the whole controversy over Solyndra and the money, the economic development money that went to Solyndra. Well, the, the government owned the technology that's, when they repossessed basically the technology that Solyndra developed with the government money. So it wasn't it wasn't just a, a corporate handout like people want yeah, like it yeah. like you're like the like the, the the extremism media would like you to believe when they're spinning facts on you all the time all the time yes um, and, and but when when, I, when you would try to explain to somebody that yeah there was four hundred million dollars worth of money that went to Solyndra but the government got some of the good of that back. And, and, and there, there are clawbacks, there are, there are performance measures that go into all of these, these economic development incentives that the public doesn't see, let alone get, get the opportunity to negotiate. Yeah. And I've, no, I've negotiated dozens of them. So you brought up an interesting thing, the media, you know, the, what the status of this country right now, where it seems like we have shifted from concentrating on policy from a federal level to a state level, even a local level to just fighting constantly. And I, I, we've said it on here before we blame the media for a lot of this because they're not saying the real story. They're putting out the facts, but it's not the real thing. What do you think? What's I'm, I'm a, as you know, I'm an ex journalist. I have an appreciation of the first amendment and the media. I do not have an appreciation of people calling the, the extreme partisan media news their opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the, recent, the recent revelations that are coming out of the Meadows texts with, with media extremists should be eye-opening to a lot of people that those are not news people. Yes. If you want news, turn to PBS. Yes. Turn to the BBC. I mean, even like to, to give some people credit where credit's due, you know, um, one of the the right-wing media guys, the, the biggest one of all time was Rush Limbaugh, right? Like that was like, he, he's the most right-wing extremist. He's only worked for Republicans. Well, he even said himself, he's like, we're not the news. This is entertainment. Like, you know, I say these things, but I'm not saying the news. Well, he started out as entertained. I mean, I yeah. remember listening to him back in the, in the early 90s when he first became popular. And that's what it was. It was entertainment radio. Yeah, even and then, I, all, and then all of a sudden people started taking him seriously, and then he started taking himself seriously. Yeah, yeah, and that's the problem. I look at anybody in the media, in the big media, whether it's left or right. You know, you have MS, MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News. It's just entertainment. That's all it is. I don't pay attention to it. That's well, that's what drives business. me crazy as an old news guy. I mean, I watch ABC with Vlad and Anne Marie. Well, Anne Marie's line of questioning, where she gives you her opinion and the question, drives me insane. Yeah. 
I just called out two people. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> if they're listening, you can call us at... Vlad, yeah. give me a call. <laughs> give Kevin a call. He'll, he'll tell you, he'll line you out for sure. Yeah. And then, to, and then to throw everything on top of that, you have Facebook and Twitter and social media, all this stuff. And I mean, everybody that listens to this has their grandparent or their kids. doesn't matter. Say like, did you see this? Are you not appalled by what this is? And I'd like click on it and I'm like, just ignore that. So I'm oh, buddy, I am, I am, tri- I am triple microchipped, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for sure. The 5G towers are activating my shots right now. So in the last two minutes of, of our show, Kevin, give us a bright spot that has you feeling like it's going to be okay. You know, I'm looking forward to 2022. I'm excited about it. I've got a great team here. We've got a, we've got a plan going into 2022 for the Valley that I think is going to be exciting on top of the broadband efforts of Action, of action 22 and Paradigm Connectivity. Uh I think there's bright spots ahead for the San Luis Valley and Southern Colorado in general. There's going to be some challenges. There's going to be some climate challenges. They're going to, but we're we're better positioned to overcome that, and 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 we're more thoughtful in overcoming that than I've ever seen in my 60 years of affiliation with with the state. And would you say that just the region, specifically the valley, the valley, as the we valley. talked about earlier, um, could the rest of rural Colorado or other states look at the Valley as kind of the model, how to get through this. Yes. Yes. Especially, I mean, I, 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 because I was born on the Eastern Plains, I equate the Valley with the Eastern Plains. So I think there's a lot of similarities where we can learn from each other. And I, and I, and, and because I've spent a lot of time in Nebraska and Nebraska has some qualities that we can reflect back to San Luis Valley and each, I draw, I draw upon my experiences in Nebraska a lot for my economic development strategies here in the San Luis Valley. So look, look without, look, don't quit looking within, look without, find some solutions and let's go. Let's get shit done. All right. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for doing the show today. Next week, we're going to be having a conversation with Cleve Simpson, who is also from the San Luis Valley, on one of the most um, pressing, if not the most pressing issue um, for Colorado, for the San Luis Valley, and for the Western United States, and that is water. So um, join us next week, and that'll be our final show for the year. Um, We appreciate you all listening. If you haven't joined Action 22 yet, um, you can do so now. We encourage you to do so now. Let us know at uh, show, S-H-O-W, at action22.org. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.